Hello, my name is Cary Grant. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. After 30 years of ministry, I have lost the amazing gift of verbal speech. I have a condition called abductor spasmodic dysphonia, which leaves me unable to make sounds with my vocal cords. I am speaking to you through an app called ProLoquo for text. We like to refer to it as my technology. Although, verbally silent for five years now, there is still so much I need to say. This podcast is a collection of sermons I preached before becoming silent, as well as conversations I want to have with you. I would encourage you to visit my website, silentlywaiting.com. On the website you can read my blog and find resources that might help you grow in your walk with Christ. Thank you for listening and please email me if you have any questions about the sermon or if I can help you in your spiritual journey. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles please to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. This book of Philippians is one of Paul's thank you letters. It's a time for Paul to say thanks to the church at Philippi because they had sent more than one time financial help and certainly they were praying for Paul in his missionary journeys. It is a book about praise. It is a book about joy. It is a book about rejoicing. As a matter of fact, this theme of rejoicing is all through this book. Look in chapter 1. Keep your finger at chapter 3, but go back to chapter 1 and look at verse number 18. In verse number 18, we read these words, where What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Look down at verse number 26. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ. Look in chapter number 2 at verse number 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. Verse 17, yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Verse 18, for the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. Verse number 28, I sent him therefore the more carefully that when you see him again, you may rejoice. Go to chapter 3 and look at verse number 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Verse number three, for we are the, the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Chapter four, chapter four now at verse number four. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Verse number 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. So you see joy and rejoicing in every chapter of this book. And yet don't overlook the fact that Paul is in prison when he's writing this book. He's in chains. 
He's under arrest. He's waiting for an opportunity to stand before Nero, which you know from history is not the best friend of Christians, to present a case, a defense, for charges that have been brought against him. As a matter of fact, also, don't forget, it will eventually be Nero who will remove Paul's head from him. Yet this book is full of rejoicing. Despite his circumstances, despite his situation, Paul is joying and rejoicing in our Lord Jesus Christ. What, though, is the reason for the joy? What is the reason for the rejoicing? Is it just because he received money? Is it just because they were praying for him? Is it just because of memories he could look back to and think of a Philippian jailer who, who miraculously came to Christ one night after an earthquake and, and the prison bars were broken and his family came to Christ and they were all baptized? Can, is it just those kinds of memories? Well, I'm sure that's part of it. But what was really the foundation for Paul's joy and rejoicing? I believe we find it in chapter 3. And I want to begin our reading at verse number one. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous. In other words, it's no trouble for me to write this. But for you, it is safe. Beware of dogs. Now, the dogs he's referring to here are those who teach false doctrine. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Now the concision is specifically Jewish people who, who would mutilate themselves so that they could appear to be spiritual. These were people who would, who would beat their own bodies so that others would think that they were good and godly people. Beware of that, Paul says. Then he explains why. For we are the circumcision. You see, it's not any mark on a body that makes anyone spiritual. It's the heart. Which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh. I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness of the law which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. Here's the reason for his joy. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection 
of the dead. Can we pause and pray before the message this morning? Father, thank you that our hearts can be filled with joy because of Christ. If we're lacking in joy today, it's because we lack something we need to know about Jesus. So help us to learn what we need to know so that our joy can be full. God, you know I cannot do this without your help. God, your people need to hear from you today. I pray that we would all be willing to say, what God do you want me to know? What do you want me to learn? Teach me and I'll do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very personal letter written by the Apostle Paul. He says a lot about himself. He opens his heart, he opens him, himself up to these Philippian believers. But he does so for the purpose of helping them to see that it's not knowing Paul that's the most important thing that they could do. It's not what they do in their walk with God that was the most important thing that they could do. It was knowing Christ is the most important thing that they could do. And when we speak of knowing God or when we speak of knowing Christ, we're not just talking about knowing facts. We're not just talking about being able to answer quizzes in a Bible class. We're talking about knowing God personally. Knowing God by experience. Now let me just stop and say this. It is amazing to me that we can use the terms knowing God in the same sentence. Because God doesn't have to be known. God is the self-existent one. God can get along fine without any of us. And yet God makes himself accessible. God wants fellowship with us. How do I know that? He sent Jesus to make it happen. The reason that you and I can have any access to God, the reason God hears any of our prayers, the reason any of us can truly worship God is because Jesus made it possible. We often look, when we talk about the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we talk about that veil in the temple that when Jesus cried out, it is finished, was ripped from top to bottom. Folks, do you understand what that is symbolizing for us? Before that took place, before the veil was ripped in two, only the high priest, once a year, after going through a ceremonial cleansing, uh, cleansing himself, making a sacrifice for himself, so, so he could go behind that veil only once, only uh, once a year, but when Jesus died, we can all come into God's presence now anytime we want to. Jesus made it possible. God wants to be known. How do I know he wants to be known? He sent Jesus to make it happen. There's another reason I know God wants to be known. He gave us his word. God has told us in this book everything he wants us to know about him. He doesn't have to speak audibly anymore. He doesn't have to write it in the sky. He doesn't have to speak through angels. He certainly doesn't speak through any man or individual. He speaks through his word and he still speaks. God wants to be known. Do you know God? 
Paul says, I rejoice. I find joy in the fact that I know Christ. It's interesting some of the things that Paul talks about in this text. You see, there were some in Philippi who were finding their joy. They were rejoicing in their outward form of spirituality. That's the concision we were talking about. That's the false teachers we were talking about there in verse number 2. Because they had taken this mark on their flesh or they had... They had uh, been circumcised, and you understand that circumcision was an Old Testament law uh, given uh, that symbolized the parting away, the putting away of the flesh. It was just a symbol. It was never intended to be a mark of spirituality. But there were those who were, who were saying because this had happened to them, because this, th th they were doing other things, that they were the spiritual people. Paul said, no, it's not what we do that makes it spiritual. It's who we know. That makes that happen. But if we wanted to talk about outward righteousness. If we wanted to talk about somebody who because of what, what he did. Would look spiritual. It was Paul. Look how he describes himself. He says. I might have confidence in the flesh. If any other man. I'm at verse number 14. Thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh. I more. Now he's going to start to list for us all the reasons. That if works were good enough to get you to heaven, doing something was good enough to make you like Christ or make you a part of the family of God, Paul said, I would be in. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. He was keeping the law of the stock of Israel. He's, a, he's, he's Jewish of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, now being from the tribe of Benjamin was... was was kind of like an exclusive club among the Jewish people, all right? I mean, being from the tribe of Benjamin, it was, it, they were known, they, they were the smallest of the tribes. They were an elite group of people. Uh, you, you have Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul's namesake, King Saul, who was of the tribe of Benjamin as well. So it's a kingly tribe. So being from the tribe of Benjamin, the, the clan of Benjamin meant something. He goes on and he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. An interesting phrase. Paul's family. Paul's family would have been, Paul's ancestors would have been a part of the group of people that would have been uh, exiled from Jerusalem during what is called the diaspora, the dispersion. They ended up in Tarsus. But they remained Jewish in their worship. They were Hebrews who were outside of the place that Hebrews worshipped, and yet they continued their Hebrew worship. So even... Even being exiled from where the temple was, they continued in their Jewish lifestyle and their Jewish worship, which is what he's describing as being a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, he says, I was a Pharisee. He, he is one of the elite for several reasons. Being a Pharisee meant that you kept the law visibly so others could see it. Concerning zeal, 
He says, I was so zealous, I persecuted the church. Now the church were in, in his thinking as Saul were those who were trying to do damage to the Jewish religion. So he persecuted them. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, he says, I was blameless. No one could point to Paul's life and say, Paul, you haven't done this. He could say, yes, I have. So Paul is looking back over in his life and he's saying, look, people, if there is anybody who could say, I deserve to be a part of the family of God because of what I do, I'm it. You know what? There are, there are people like that still today. There are people who think because of the family they grew up in. There are people who think because of the way that they worship, the religion that they're a part of. There are people who think that because of what they do that they deserve to be a part of the family of God. I remember meeting a man one time in, in Virginia outside of Roanoke. And the pastor and I went over to this man's house he hadn't been able to attend, so I was, we were there conducting revival meetings, and we sat down in this man's living room, and I introduced myself, or the pastor introduced us, and, and I, I, as I do sometimes when I meet new people, I'll, I'll, I'll say, well, now share with me how you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And he began to tell me about, about how, how that people in, this, on, in his neighborhood knew he was a good man, and, and he pointed to his garden, and he had a beautiful garden. He said, you know, I... I there, uh, I, I help feed people from the food that I grow in my garden. And, and he said, I, I, that church you're at right now, he said, I taught Sunday school there for years. I, I, I've been a deacon at that church. And he began to tell me everything he did. But he never told me what Jesus had done for him. So after he went through this litany of things, I, I said, sir, you know, well, that's wonderful. That's commendable. Can you, can you tell me, though, how you know you're going to heaven, how you know you're part of the family of God? And you know what he did? He went right back through that same list. My friend, if you're here today and you think you're going to heaven because of anything you do or have done, can I share with you what God says? He says it's not by the works of righteousness which we have done. But it's according to his mercy that he saves us. He says it's we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. You may be a moral person and, and there would be no denying it. Everyone knows that. You may be a good person, and other people know that. You may do good things for people, and other people recognize that. But can I say to you, you will never do enough good. There will never be enough things that you can do that are good for people that will merit you or earn you a place in heaven because we'll never be good enough. All the righteous things we depend on, all the righteous things we might do to earn heaven are filthy rags, the Bible calls them. So let Jesus do something for you today. Let him forgive your sin and make you a part of the family of God. Paul said, you know what? If anybody could boast about being religious and deserving heaven, I'm the man. He said, but no, it's not good enough. That's not why I boast. That's not why I rejoice. He says in verse number seven, those things that were gained to me, I counted loss. 
By the way, when he says he counted loss, he's not just talking about something he did at one point in his life. He's talking about something he continues to do. He never trusts in what he does. He never trusts in what he's doing for Christ. He trusts continually in what Christ has done for him. He says, I counted them loss for Christ. And verse number eight, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss so that I can do one thing. And what is that? So that I can know Christ. The phrase there, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus could literally be translated the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. That's where I'd like to focus this morning. The surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Paul said there's nothing more important to me than that. Is that what you can say? Some of you have hobbies and, and, and nothing wrong with having a hobby. Some of you like sports and there's nothing wrong with sports. So, some of you like hunting and fishing and nothing wrong with hunting and fishing. Some of you for your occupations, you have to do a lot of study and you have to keep up even now with the latest changes in technology or the latest changes that are going on in the medical field and those kind of things. You're, you're constantly learning new things. You joy in that. But do you know more about your hobby? Do you know more about your guns? Do you know more about your rod and reel? Do you know more about your favorite sports team? Do you know more about your occupation than you know about Jesus? How much time do you spend learning Christ compared to the time you spend learning about these other things? There are things that I enjoy doing. There are things that we enjoy doing. As a matter of fact, you know what? Some people can take that so far as even the Bible. There are some people who are very proud about how much they know about their Bible without knowing much about the God behind it. Who or what do you know more about than you know about Christ? Folks, do we know God personally? Now, Paul met Christ in a way that was very dramatic. You know the story, right? He was on his way to Damascus in Syria, which is in the news quite a bit. And when we say down to Damascus, the way that geography of the Jewish people is described, anywhere they went from Jerusalem, somewhere else they were going down, even though Damascus is geographically north from Jerusalem, all right? So he's on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. And on the way, Jesus knocks him off his horse, confronts him about his sin, and brings him into the family of God. Now, most of us don't have that kind of salvation experience we can look back on. But we can know Christ just as personally as Paul did. We can know 
Christ just as experientially as Paul did. Do you know Christ? Today, folks, right now, is God working in your life? Right now, is God working in your life? Is there something in your mind saying, you know what? I do want to know more about Jesus. Don't ignore that. Don't let that voice become silent. That is God's Holy Spirit in you saying, do what I'm telling you. Learn. Know me, he said. So we can know him personally. He goes on in this same text. If you go and you look at verse number 10, he says, not only can we know Christ, we can know the power of his resurrection. The power that brought about his resurrection, literally what this is describing. The resurrection literally touches every part of our life as a believer. The resurrection literally changes history, but it changes us personally. As far as our salvation is concerned, Romans chapter 4 and verse number 25 says, who was delivered, talking about Jesus, for our offenses or our sins, and was raised again for our justification. Justification is a declaration from God himself that guilty sinners are made innocent by the blood of Christ. Has God said that about you? Has God declared you innocent? Has God declared you righteous? The, the resurrection makes that possible. The resurrection affects how we serve our Lord Jesus. Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Living for Christ is made possible by the resurrection. Do you know Christ? Do you know the power that brought about his resurrection? But let me show you something about the resurrection of Christ and knowing Christ again that that sometimes I think we tend to forget, and that is the resurrection helps bring stability to our lives. What am I talking about? Well, let me just lead into it this way. Maybe, maybe right now your world has been rocked. Maybe right now you've received news that has shattered you. Maybe this week that kind of thing will happen. Maybe you're facing situations like you've never known before. Knowing Christ and experiencing the power of Christ in your life that brought about his resurrection can help bring stability to your life. How do I know that? Let me show you. Remember Job. Job. Within one day, within a matter of hours, Job literally lost everything he had. Within a day or two after that, we're not really sure how long he lost his health. The only, the only thing he didn't lose was his wife, and she really wasn't very much help to him. And he lost some friends that he should have lost, okay, to begin with. Or he had some friends that he should have lost, I should say, because they were no help to him. They were saying, yeah, the reason you're suffering is because you're not right with God. 
And that was true to a point, but that's not what he needed to hear at that, at that point. And they were being self-righteous when they were saying that to him anyway. So Job literally loses everything. When Job goes through the process of repentance, Job realizes that he doesn't have a right view of God. And can I, tell you, can I say something to you, friends? Every problem we have in our life, we could trace back to the fact that we have a wrong view of God somewhere. Every problem. Every issue we could, that, that we are dealing with, we can trace it back to somehow we have a wrong view of God. Job didn't see God like he needed to. That's why Job, God had to come to Job and just ask him a series of questions. Job, do you play with Leviathan like a, a dog on a leash? Job, where do you store the, the frost for the wintertime, the snow, when before it falls? Job, who are you? And eventually Job's going to say, I knew you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I see you for who you are. And then he says, I repent. So after Job gets it, God restores his fortune, right? God restores what he had lost. And everything is doubled except for what? His children. He receives double the number of sheep. He receives double the number of camels. But he, he receives the same number of children he had originally lost. You say, why would God do that? Because the resurrection makes all the difference. Because since there is a resurrection, Job had double the number of children. The others were just waiting in heaven to be resurrected again. Friends, listen. Maybe you've stood by the casket of someone you loved dearly and they are gone now. If they knew Christ, listen to me, you have the stability of knowing you'll see them again. And that same power that brings about resurrection can give you stability every day of your walk with God. Do you know Christ? Do you know him in the power of his resurrection? Let me show you one of the reasons Paul said, I really do want to know Christ and I am willing to do whatever it takes he says in verse number 10 that I may know him in the power of the, his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Maybe you're, you're saying in your heart, I do want to know more. I do want to know Christ. I do want to fellowship with him. I want to know more about him than I know right now. I want to experience him more than I'm experiencing right now. I want to know Christ. Folks, this is how it happens. Through suffering. Say, isn't there an easier way? I wish I could say yes, but no, I can't. Now, now we can learn about him through his word. We can spend time with him in prayer. But there is something unique about the way that God works through pain that he can't work any other way or doesn't choose to work any other way. 
Most of us wish the trials would go away. When, we, when, we're, when we're suffering in hardship, when we're suffering through trials, we pray that God send relief. When God knows it's not relief we need, it's Him. When the trials come, we just want them to stop. And God may not let it stop because he knows it's the best thing for us so that we can know him better. Yesterday, or Friday afternoon, my wife and I went to the viewing of Miss Brenda Vaughn. Pastor John Vaughn's wife went to heaven this past week. Some of you may recognize his name, her name, back in the 70s. Mrs. Vaughn and their daughter Becky were in a house fire. Becky was burned over 95% of her body. Mrs. Vaughn suffered horrible burns. Their story is told in the book, More Precious Than Gold. A week ago, Mrs. Vaughn was doing well. She had always had some issues, some health issues related to the fire. And during one of her blood transfusions, she contracted hepatitis. But she was doing fairly well, but then suddenly took a turn and within a matter of hours was in heaven. I was thinking as we were standing in line, and I've thought this many times about Pastor Vaughn before, he has a, he has a relationship with God that I envy. He knows God a way I want to know God. But I know why he does. And I'm not sure I'm willing to go through what he has to get where he is. But I want to know Christ. And if it takes suffering, I know God will give grace. I'm not asking to suffer. But I am asking to know Jesus. Don't waste pain. Don't waste trials. They are God's opportunities of introducing himself to you. Do you know Christ? Do you know the power of his resurrection? Are you willing to partake in his sufferings? Someone has said the suffering that comes to a Christian as a Christian is not a sign of God's neglect, but rather proof that grace is at work in his or her life. That is called sacred intimacy. It's an interesting phrase, fellowship of his sufferings. This is another little theme that Paul often uses in the book of Philippians. Fellowship means to take part in. Take part in. Are you willing to take part in the sufferings of Christ that we might know him and so therefore be more like him? Paul said, you know what? It's not my pedigree. That's the most important thing about me. It's not what I do. It's not my family. It's not even you, Philippians. 
Oh, I find joy in our memories together, our fellowship together. I find joy in talking about what Jesus has done. I appreciate what you've done for me, and I'm grateful for your prayers for me, Paul says. He's, but, but he says the most important thing that any of us can do is know Christ. So today, are you willing to say, Jesus, I want to be a part of the surpassing greatness of knowing you. Would you bow your heads together with me, please?